Guys, happy Easter to you. Um, you are such a warm and um, welcoming community. Every time I come, I'm always so blessed getting to hang out with the people in this church. Um, and again, I think I said this when I was candidating here. If I if I haven't met you yet, or maybe only met you in passing, I really look forward to getting a chance to, to meet you guys and getting to know you more. Um, happy Easter. Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. You know, I I hate to say it, but there's really nothing that special about this Sunday in particular, because as far as I'm concerned, every day of my life is Resurrection Day. Now, I'll put on a tie for Easter. It's true. I, I, I'm happy it's on the calendar, and it's a day to, to celebrate together. But the fact of the matter is, is every day of my life, I am no longer in my sins because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I have access to the Father because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that's not something that matters to me just on the first Sunday of April. It's something that matters to me every day I wake up, every night I go to sleep. If you are... Um, if you are a, a first-time visitor here, because it is Easter and sometimes people come in, I do want to welcome you in, in particular. Um, I'm right there with you. Uh, this is your first time at the church, and this is my second time. So uh, we can get to know this, this sweet body of, of believers together. Um, and the final thing I was just thinking as I was talking to some of you and, and, and meditating upon what, what Resurrection Day, what Easter really means, I thought this is pretty cool uh, place to begin my ministry with you all. Um, because obviously the resurrection is the idea of a new birth, the idea of a new beginning, the idea of, of, of all that was, was sinful and broken and, 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 and darkness bursting forth into life and something new. And so I thought, you know, this is, this is cool because it is a new beginning for this church. And I, I trust that the, that the risen Lord will lead us uh, into this new, new season as well. Um, so, we give a few uh, words of introduction, and then we will read the text for this morning, and we'll get going. I assume that we all know how we woke up this morning, okay? Probably. I, most of you are probably like me. You set your alarm the night before to some really annoying, blaring sound so that I, I have a chance of actually waking up. And then, you know, at 6.30, the thing goes off. I hit snooze a couple times, and then finally I'm awake. And maybe some of you, it was a little bit more pleasant. Maybe it's like the, the smell of coffee being brewed by your spouse in the kitchen. Or maybe you do stuff for Easter with your kids with, you know, baskets and eggs or things like that. And so they were, they were getting in bed with you saying, wake up, it's time. I assume we all know how we woke up this morning. But I do wonder how many of us know why. Why another sunrise? Why another cup of coffee? Why another morning ritual? Why does 2014 turn into 2015? Why March to April? Why Saturday to Sunday? Why another Easter Sunday? 
Another resurrection day. If Jesus really is risen from the dead, if He really is the risen Lord, who's in His resurrection has become Lord of lords and King of kings, and in His ascension, we believe He's reigning at the right hand of the Father in power. If this is true, why another day? Why does this broken and sin-sick world keep revolving on? Why did we wake up this morning? Why has He not returned to make all things right and usher in the eternal sunrise of the new heavens and new earth? This is a difficult question. Perhaps it's a question that you've asked yourself or you've asked God in your prayers. Perhaps it's stuff that people have asked you or you believe in Jesus. Well, where is Jesus? This is stuff that people were coming at back in Peter's day. Coming in Him. And among the complex of, of answers we could give to this and that the Scriptures give to this, one answer in particular is foregrounded in Peter's second epistle. People are saying, where's the promise of His coming? Things just keep rolling on just like they always have. You say, oh, this grand event took place in the resurrection of your Messiah. Nothing's changed. This is what Peter says. This is his response. So why another day? Why did we wake up this morning? 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now this is not our text for this morning. This is just introduction. We will come back to it. So if I'm going fast, I'm sorry. I hear your pages turning like, what did I say? Oh. <laughs> Second Peter 3.9. Hear it again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter's answer to the question, why another day? If your Lord is risen, where is His power? Where is His kingdom? His answer is, if you're in this room and you're not a believer, you're just here because it's Easter and, and your spouse or family member dragged you in. Peter's answer is, This world keeps going on. We all woke up this morning because God loves you. Whether you believe it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, God loves you and is patient towards you and is longing to bring you to repentance and in that bring you to Himself. And so I speak for God and for every member of this church when I say that we are so glad that you're here. And it's 
my great prayer that God would use this precious little bit of time we have with you for His glory and for your eternal, everlasting peace in Him. Now let's get to the text. John 20, 19 through 23 is where we're going to be this morning. John 20, John's the fourth gospel, chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. Read it, pray, and then we'll get going. It says this. Actually, you know, let me give you background. It's the evening of the day of Jesus' resurrection, okay? We're picking it up mid-story. He's already appeared to Mary Magdalene. And now he's coming in to, 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 um, to speak with his disciples. This is his first appearance with them. Verse 19, John 20. On the evening of that day, the first of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray, guys. Jesus, you are the incorruptible one. You have risen from the dead indeed, never to die again. And even as we are in this world, a world where everything seems to be unraveling, coming apart, we know that we are anchored in you. And we hold on to you because you hold on to us. Christ, I'm praying that you would come for everyone in this room and usher in your resurrection peace. Show us afresh your scars by which you accomplished that peace for us, Lord. I pray that you would anoint me, help me to get out of the way, speak through me to this people. And I pray, God, that you would give them ears to hear. We know when your word goes forth, it is in vain unless your spirit comes. And your spirit always attends your word. Please be here present in our midst. We trust you are in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to focus our attention this morning on those four little words, peace be with you. Our text, and we can even say Easter and the resurrection, really are all about this peace. And what's amazing to think about is, at least according to the biblical record that we have, it would seem that this word, peace, was one of the, if not the, first word Jesus spoke 
to his disciples after his resurrection. That should highlight its importance for us. And so I want to begin here by simply defining it. What is peace? If we're going to understand the wonder of this announcement when Jesus comes to his disciples, we have to know what the Bible means by it because it doesn't necessarily mean what immediately comes to our mind and what our culture tries to teach us about peace. We oftentimes, I think popular culture, likes to locate peace in certain dimensions of life. Okay? So think with me here how you would be defining it when you think peace. What do you think of? I'll give you some examples. Some like to locate peace in the natural dimension. This is kind of those screensavers that are like preloaded on your computer when, you know, the picture comes up and, and there's the, the pristine white sand and the, the, the crystal blue waters and you're in your cubicle and you're just coveting at that point. You're saying, oh, if I could just be there, I would have peace. We locate it sometimes in the natural realm. Other times... We want to locate it in the interpersonal dimension. We think that peace, and and rightfully so, is when the white flag has been raised and our enemies finally come under our authority and we have peace. Or maybe we think about it when we come down from the stairs in the morning and there are my little daughters actually playing well with one another. (laughs) They're at peace. Or maybe it's that embrace of a a husband and a wife after a bitter fight. It's peace. Interpersonal peace. Another dimension sometimes people will locate peace within is the psychological dimension. I don't mean people going crazy. I mean your, 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 your heart, your soul, your mind. There's this idea of an unrippled mind. Tranquility. The state of om. That's peace. Maybe you hear people talk about it like that. Let's get into what the Bible has to say about it. The word in the Greek behind our English, peace in this case, corresponds to the Hebrew that you might be familiar with. Shalom. Anybody heard of that before? Shalom. Shalom is the word for peace in the Hebrew language. And when you trace its understanding in the scriptures, what you find is that it is one of the broadest, most comprehensive, richest categories in all the scriptures. Shalom. Peace. It cannot be located in a particular dimension of life. In fact, what we find is it encompasses the whole of it. We don't locate it within the natural, the interpersonal, the psychological. If we had to locate it anywhere, we would locate it in the theological, meaning that which pertains to God. And because God is the fountainhead of this peace, of this shalom, what that means is everything else comes with it and is comprehended by it. Because God created and reigns over all things. So this shalom, this reign of peace, is is essentially encompassing everything 
All those dimensions we talked about. God created the natural as a context for man who he created body and soul and he put in community with a spouse there. God is over it all. Shalom is an all-comprehensive category. This peace is as big and as broad as God himself. If I had to define it, this would be my definition of shalom. It is the perfect peace that emanates out from God and encompasses all things, putting them in right relationship with Him and hence harmonious relationship with one another. Everything is right with the world. That's shalom. It's as if this symphony is perfectly ordered by the divine conductor. That's shalom. That is the peace that Jesus first speaks to his disciples upon his resurrection appearance to them. So today, what I want to do is organize my thoughts under three headings. And we'll kind of make our way through the text this way. First, the absence of peace. It's going to be the first part of verse 19, verse what I would call 19a. Second, the accomplishment of peace. It's going to be second part of verse 19, 19b to verse 20. And then third, the advance of peace. That's verses 21 to 23. So we've got the absence, the accomplishment, and the advance of peace. Let's get in. I want to read the first part of verse 19, the absence of peace. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Stop there. These guys are are scared. These guys are afraid. There is no peace here. There is no shalom in this moment for the disciples. Friday came, and their Messiah, the one they had hoped in, was crucified. And it's now three days later, and as far as they're concerned, he's as good as dead, and they're next. It says, for fear of the Jews, they're behind this locked door. It's just kind of giving us the picture here, John, is that these guys were terrified, and they didn't know what was going to happen, and they are hiding Because they assume we stood for Jesus and stood with Him. They didn't like it. It was a threat to their earthly aspirations. It was even what they would call blasphemy. A crime punishable by death according to Jewish law. And they know we stood with them all those years in His ministry. We are next. There's no peace in this little room. They're trembling. They're scared. Now, we might not be currently fearing political leaders in this room here this morning, although there is some scary stuff going on right now in our country. Maybe legitimate reason to be concerned. But I know, I know that there is always something we are at least tempted to be afraid of. And some of us might even be in the grip of it here this morning. And I wonder, what is it for you? 
What is it? We know we live in a world that's not at shalom. We know we live in a world that is chaotic and unraveling. How does that play out in your life? When does your breath start to get shallow and your chest start to get constricted? When do you want to run into the the inner room of your house and lock the door? I I don't want to see anybody. I don't want them to see me. Does that happen? You ever feel that way? What is it for you? Is it the project that's due at work and it's not ready? And you're already, you already have the yellow card with your boss and you're waiting for the, you're done. Is it a shrinking bank account and a growing family? In this area, I'm becoming acquainted with it very quickly. (laughs) It's scary, okay? I understand. Financial peace is often elusive in the Silicon Valley. Or maybe it's a memory of a loved one's painful death that just comes back and you haven't gotten over it. And your spouse comes home and finds you in a pool of tears on the floor. We are very aware that this is a broken world. And this is a scary place. And there are threats to peace on every side. So where do we go? What do we do? Let me move us under the heading, the accomplishment of peace. And let's look down at the second part of verse 19. So they're in there for fear of the Jews. And then Jesus came. He stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The most amazing news of all is that we don't have to go anywhere this morning for peace. We don't have to go anywhere. Jesus finds us in our fears and in our tremblings and in our weakness and behind that locked door that we didn't want anyone else to find us. He still gets there and He finds us and He stands in our midst. This is a wonderful fulfillment of the promise he made in John 14, 18 to 19. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. This is before his crucifixion. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Anyone feel like an orphan in this room? Anyone feel like no one's going to care for me? I got to figure it out myself. That's the orphan mentality. It's up to me. And that is a terrifying place to be because we are tiny and insignificant and totally exposed to the chaos that is this fallen world. And Jesus says, I will not leave you as an orphan, I am coming to you. And so let me tell you something. The Christian life is not so much about we've got to find our way to Jesus as much as it is about opening up our hearts to the One who is already here. 
He's already present in our midst. Open your heart to Him. Let Him deal with your fear and bring you peace. Jesus comes, but He doesn't just come. He speaks. And although we would be quiet enough in our anxieties and fears this morning that we would hear Him when He speaks, because we would be blown away by what He has to say. Peace be with you. This should, this should amaze us. If we have been reading through John's Gospel up to this point, these words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth should amaze us. This is the greeting of a friend to those who have abandoned and even denied Him. By all accounts, we would expect Jesus to show up and to say, not peace be with you, but how about guilt be with you. Oh, that could have been bad. Shame be with you. How could you? Not a word about that. Peace be with you. That's what he would say to you this morning, even in your struggling and being defeated at times by sin. You ever thought Jesus would show up and you'd get just one of these? If he were actually here? Is that your Jesus? Because that's not my Jesus, and that's not the Jesus of the Bible. He shows up and He knows we're in a fallen world and He knows we're scared and He knows it's hard and He sees us in our sin. He sees it all. And He comes and He says, Peace be with you. I am with you. But what does He mean by this phrase? What does He mean by peace be with you? You see, for the the Hebrew person, it actually wouldn't have been that profound. This is actually how they, they, they greet one another, even to this day. Peace be with you. Think of something like, Shalom Aleichem. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I did that. I think maybe because I've been in Hebrew class too long. But that's what you would hear if you went to Israel. They're still greeting one another like that to this day. And so... Is there anything more significant when Jesus comes in and says the very same thing? Standard greeting. I think there is. I know there is. He's investing so much more meaning into this greeting to the point where I don't think we have a greeting anymore as much as we have an announcement of an accomplishment. All the other greetings in the Old Testament, you could say, were anticipatory of this messianic greeting. They all were hoping for a peace only the Messiah could deliver. And so when he shows up and says, peace be with you, he means it in a way that no other Hebrew ever did or ever could. Which is why, by the way, in all the epistles... That greeting changes from peace be with you to grace and 
peace be with you. Because they know that peace is rooted in Christ's grace. That's just a side note. Let's keep moving on in in, in our, our section here. Verse 20, the first part of it. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And we're still talking about this accomplishment of peace, okay? And we're getting closer to, to, to the, uh, the, the real big stuff here. He, after saying peace, be with you, he showed them his hands and his side. Why? That's our question. Why? Some of the other Gospels give us a few different reasons. There are layered reasons as to why Jesus would show his hands and his side. His, 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 his resurrection scars of crucifixion wounds. That's what he's showing them. Pierced in the side, nails through the hands. He's showing them these scars. Why? We see some, some Gospels talk about how, hey, to prove that he's, he's a physical being. He's not a ghost. We see later in John's Gospel with Thomas, he's kind of proving his identity. It's me, look! It's not just some guy who looks like me. Do they have scars like this? But I think our narrative actually pushes us to see even more here. What we see is that he is showing them how this peace was accomplished for them. He is grounding his announcement of peace into in his accomplishment of it. The cross. The cross. Now, if we're going to see the glory of his accomplishment on the cross, I want to set it in its historical context for a moment. His accomplished peace is set profoundly against the point when all peace was lost. And sadly enough, all peace was lost at the very beginning of the biblical story. You remember Adam in the garden? Created by God. Given this perfect pattern of shalom, of peace. He's at one with God in the theological dimension, you could say. He, he's at one within himself. He's at one with his spouse. He's singing over this bride who God has brought to him. And he's at one with the land, with nature, with creation. It would, he would go and cultivate and not thorns and all this stuff would come up, but fruit. This pattern of shalom is there at the beginning. That's how God intended the world to be. He was supposed to pass what we would call the probation of the judgment tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and move out from the Garden of Eden with that pattern into the world, extending it. Be fruitful, multiply, fill it, not just with people, but with shalom. People that have peace in every dimension. He was to partner with God in extending this peace, but what happened? Instead of casting the satanically energized serpent out of the garden, he succumbed to his advances, turned on his creator, and partnered with the serpent not to extend peace, but to extend chaos. 
and death. That's the movement that goes out from the garden paradise itself because of Adam's sin. I want you to see this. Sin is that point. It's like a snag that that cuts loose a thread by which the entire divine tapestry comes undone. You ever have a sweater like that? All it takes is one little snag and the whole thing, over time, a couple washes and it's gone. Sin, that thing that crept into the heart of Adam that turned him against his father in the theological dimension, the dimension that comprehends all others, sin is what caused everything else to go wrong. And you watch it play out from that point. What happens after that initial moment? He is hiding from the Father. He is burdened with guilt and shame. Psychological dimension. He is blaming his spouse. Interpersonal dimension. And in the curse, what? The land that was going to be fruitful for him now will bring forth thorns and thistles. And he is exiled from God's presence with a flaming sort of judgment guarding the way back. And this chaos, this unraveling, has carried forward in our day. It's what we experience all around us, all the time. We turn on the news, we see it. This world has great need for shalom. We were created for it. Yet, because of sin, not just Adam's, but our own, we live in chaos. We live in what you might term un-shalom. And a quick word about that. No one, no one wants to locate our problem with peace in the theological dimension, in the place of sin in our hearts. We all want to blame something else, and that's actually part of the problem, right? We want to blame our government. We want to blame our spouse. We want to blame our finances or our boss or our bodies. But don't you blame me. I'm not the problem. It's not the biblical story. So there's this unraveling. It's carried forth into our day, but God has not abandoned us. We are not left to ourselves. It is incredible. In the very act of cursing the world, God also promises a coming future blessing. A Redeemer. One who would overturn the curse and overturn the unshalom and usher back in the peace we all are longing for. It's like this golden thread of promise that runs through the Old Testament. It's not susceptible to all the, the chaos and the fraying. It just keeps going. It's, this, it's like this golden thread that just runs through the entire Old Testament. And you see it in some of these texts. I'll I'll fly through them in just a moment. He will be a prince of peace. You familiar with that? In Isaiah 9, 6. 
He's going to have a reign of peace. Isaiah 52, 7. He's going to establish a place of peace. Haggai 2, 9. Making with his people a covenant of peace. Ezekiel 37, 26. And this peace... It's going to extend in all directions and will not stop until the wolf dwells with the lamb, the lion lays down with the calf, and the child plays over the cobra's den. Isaiah 11. It's going to be a multi-dimensional and all-encompassing shalom. That's what's coming. That's what God promises to a sinful people. And when the prince arrives, you remember what happens the night of his birth? Do you remember what we're told? It's like the heavens just kind of erupt with praise. And do you remember what the angels are singing? This is what the shepherds heard. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's going to be a peaceful kingdom. He's bringing it back. He's going to restore it. Everyone wants it. Many were ecstatic about its coming. Nobody knew how, in fact, it was going to be accomplished. Nobody saw it coming. Not even the disciples. Which is why they're cowering in that room for fear of the Jews. It's over. The Prince of Peace is dead. Nobody understood that before he could be the Prince of Peace, he had to be the man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. That his stripes, his wounds, would be what heal us. The iniquities laid on him, the crushing of the Father, that's how we would be given peace. He would have to take the curse on our sin to its full and final end if in fact He were going to overturn and lead on out into true and full-orbed shalom. The dimensions that God was bringing together in creation, the dimensions that began to fray in the fall of Adam are brought to their ultimate Undoing in the crucifixion of the Son of God. This is all chaos coming in for the Savior. This is His uncreating. This is His unshaloming brought to the the fullest extent in His person on the cross. Every dimension unraveling. I see little kids in here. I hope I'm not scaring them. Think about this with me. Psychological dimension of our Savior. As the shadow of the cross starts to fall over Him, His own soul becomes burdened within Him. You remember what He says after the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, John 12? Now is my soul troubled. Or later in Gethsemane, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. All that chaos, all the unraveling is starting to affect our Savior. 
this Redeemer, this Prince of Peace, this Man of Sorrows. The interpersonal dimension, you remember around the table of the Last Supper, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And Judas, energized by Satan, just like that serpent, Jesus is going to undo the fall here, betrays the one whose bread he had been eating, who he'd been walking with. And that's just the beginning of the, of the unraveling here. Because soon the disciples are going to leave him utterly alone. And at the cross, what do you have but Jew and Gentile representing the entire world? Turning against him. Mocking, spitting, beating, crucifying. Utterly alone. No one there for our Savior. Or in the natural dimension, you remember, when he's on the cross at high noon, what does it say? The sky just went black. It's as if the whole world fell under Satan's shadow. Even the sun couldn't get through in this moment. Creation's just going crazy. It says that when he yielded up his spirit, The rocks were split and the earth started shaking. The the Scriptures are trying to tell us something. They're trying to say that this curse on sin is being taken here to its full and final end. And do you remember what was around His brow, pressed into His temples? It was the very emblem of the curse. It was a crown of thorns. And finally, who could forget the horrifying cry of the beloved son who has been disadopted? It feels like we're not left as orphans. He was left as an orphan on the cross. My God, my God, theological dimension. Why have you forsaken me? This is it. This is as unshalom as it gets. This is the curse taken to its logical end in the person of Jesus Christ, which is why he would say, It is finished. As his soul is ripped from his body, a state, by the way, that we should never have been in. God put those two together. What He joins together, body and soul, should not have been torn asunder. It's the utter uncreation of our Lord. But we know why He did it. And that's why we're here this Sunday, and I'm keeping you late. Because He wasn't done. Three days later, on a Sunday just like this, perhaps, the Father and the Son and the Spirit said to that beaten, broken body, Get up! And He rose again from the dead, never to die again.
if the crucifixion was God's bringing sin to its logical end in the person of Jesus Christ, the resurrection is God's vindication of His innocence. And it's a declaration to the world that peace is found in this man because He has risen to remake the world. The firstborn from the dead, the firstborn among many brethren. It's the beginning of the grand rethreading. He is going to put things right from cacophony back into symphony, from chaos back into shalom. This is why we have in Colossians 1, 18-20, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. You hear this language. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. All things at some point will be (laughs) utterly restored after the pattern of Shalom. That's what He's doing. That's what He's after. And you know what? He begins with us. Which is why He's risen first day. I'm going to my disciples. I'm going to my people. He begins with us and He comes and He says, peace be with you in a way no one ever has. And He says, you want to know how? Look at my scars. The hammer that drove the nails through his hand might have well may as well been a gavel in the hand of a heavenly judge. He took on our guilt, all our sin. Guilty is charged. And so what we read when we look at his scars, not guilty is charged, but the terms of our bail. We count the cost of our ransom in His wounds. We have been freed. He was made sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And in that being right with God, all things follow with it. If He is for us, who can be against us? Now, I will be drawing things to a close here, but let me point out really quickly. Verse 22 in our text there in John 20, really interesting. Christ illustrates what He's doing. You ever wonder, why why does it say He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit? Why is He breathing on them? What's He doing? He is alluding back to Genesis 2. When God made humanity from the dust and breathed life into them before it all unraveled. And Jesus is here saying, peace be with you. Here's how I did it. Now let me show you illustration form what that means. I am recreating you from the inside out. All things will be new. And it starts with your heart. 
Now, verse 20, the second part. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I hope in this room some of you are experiencing that joy. Let your soul rejoice. Your Savior comes to you even in your sin, even in your fear, even in your anxieties, and He brings an accomplished peace and gives it to you freely. Receive it and rejoice. Your peace and your joy are as sure as His person. He's risen from the dead. Our joy, incorruptible. Now, we'll come back to where I began. Because I imagine some of us are saying, not so fast. Where is the promise of, of this shalom? Where is it? You're talking about this grand rethreading and this Savior who is recreating the world. And yet I look around and I'm not seeing it quite yet. In fact, when I watch people come to Christ, sometimes life gets harder. And you know what? This is a very insightful objection. Because it's right in line with our text here. When Jesus comes and says, Peace be with you to the disciples... He doesn't mean I've taken care of your fears in the sense that I've taken a sword to the Jews and now all your enemies are gone, all those ones you're fearing, and let's march you out in peace. No, no, no. The Sanhedrin, they're still out there scheming right outside the walls and many of Christ's disciples will later die at their hands. So what is this peace? What is it? How are we supposed to understand it? I think a key to help us understand is in John 16, 33. He says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In me, peace. In the world where I am leaving you, Tribulation. What's going on here? He's describing for us the peace and the the stage that it's in right now. Okay? In Him we have peace. And that peace is sure, He says. Take heart. Because it's, it's in Him. It's connected to Him. It's anchored to Him. And He has overcome the world. And He goes to prepare a place for us. And He will come back again to us. But He leaves us in the world where He has not yet established His kingdom. Fully. And so it is a peace that comes back from the ascended Christ by the Holy Spirit into our hearts. It is a spiritually conditioned peace that's working from the inside out. It's as if that golden thread of promise that I said was running through the Old Testament, untouched by the chaos of this world, has now been woven through our hearts. And even though all around is giving way, He alone is my, what does it say? My my hope and stay, or my source and stay, right? That Him on Christ the solid rock I stand. He's woven it through our hearts and we will be with Him. This is the meaning of some of that language in 2 Corinthians, that we have this treasure in jars of clay. 
Or even though my outer man is wasting away, my inner man is being renewed day after day. There is this dread and he is pulling me towards the end. And it will, it will be accomplished fully and finally until everything is under his reign of shalom. But he starts with our hearts. Why? Why not usher in that final peace now? Why does this fallen world revolve on? All of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the foretaste of glory, long for it. Come, Lord Jesus. That's how the Bible ends. Why not? Where we began with Peter is where we end. Because as we look at the last part of our text, and don't worry, it's just just a minute, That's essentially what we see, if I were to put it simply. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The simple answer to our question, why not full shalom now, is because He's giving to us the mission He had on earth. He is not done bringing people in. He does not wish for people to perish, but that they would come. We do not have this peace just to merely enjoy it. We have this peace to advance it. He gives us His Spirit so that we would go and follow in His mission, proclaiming the forgiveness of sins, publishing this peace in the world. And so, if you are one of those in this room that I began addressing, who do not yet know Jesus and the peace that is available in Him through His blood and the cross, I encourage you, he is still in the business of rethreading, unraveling lives, of recreating broken lives. He calls out to you through his word and spirit this morning. And if you hear his voice, I beg you, don't harden your heart, but reach repentance and enter into this shalom that surpasses all understanding. You've been patient with me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that though you are not here and you've gone ahead of us, you have sent back your spirit as a pledge, as a promise. And you give us a peace that we cannot explain to the world. It's a peace anchored in you, not subject to the winds and the storms because you're no longer subject to them. I pray, Lord, that people in this room today would experience, would know, would enter in more fully into your resurrection, complete, full, final shalom. You are risen, and we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.